everyone who is joining us for this podcast. In 2019, the NHS published its long-term plan, a document which set out the NHS's intentions for its future. A key part of this document was the NHS's commitment to more action on prevention and health inequalities and addressing the many factors that influence a person's health, such as the social and economic environment in which we are born, grow up, live, work and age, as well as the decisions we make for ourselves and our families. Vast differences in health outcomes exist across the UK, with a gap of almost 19 years in healthy life expectancy between the most and least deprived areas in England. Three years before the 42 integrated care systems were established across England on a statutory basis this summer, the long-term plan laid out its intentions for ICSs to provide stronger foundations for working with local government and voluntary sector partners on the agenda of prevention and health inequalities and to address such discrepancies. My name is Rosie Hill. I'm a senior associate here at Global Council in the Health and Life Sciences team. And today we will be talking about ICSs and how these are expected to have an impact on health inequalities across the country. And to discuss this and more, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Kevin Fenton, CBE, the Regional Director for London at the Office for Health Improvement and Disparities, Seema Kennedy, former Health Minister and Fellow of the Law Society of Public Health, Matthew Swindells, former Deputy CEO at NHS England, and Dr. Hartpreet Sood, practicing GP and board member at Health Education England. Kevin, thank you for joining us today. You are both a leading figure in London's approach to health inequality and a significant voice nationally. Could you set us up please with what the high level picture is for health inequalities across the country and the variation you see in London and our major cities? Great, thanks Rosie. It really is such a pleasure to be here with you and to have a chance to reflect on health inequalities, uh, both their pervasive nature, how they're changing over time and what we might be doing about them. Now, health inequalities really describe differences in health or differences in some of the important influences in health. And they're often systematically associated with being either socially disadvantaged, for example, being poor or a member of a disadvantaged racial or ethnic group, or they have factors that may put some already disadvantaged groups at further disadvantage. So we're looking at the sort of systematic uh, factors within society that place various groups uh, at risk of poorer outcomes. Now, there are a range of areas where we're concerned and why we're concerned about these health inequalities. At its core, these health inequalities often result in both poor life expectancy, and you mentioned the differences in life expectancy that we see across our country. Uh, and these differences occur by, for example, areas of socioeconomic deprivation. If you live in a poor area, you have lower life expectancy compared to more affluent parts of the country. And certainly within boroughs. But we also see these differences across gender, across race, ethnicity, and other characteristics as well. And we know these inequalities also affect healthy life expectancy. So the time it takes for you to develop your first long-term condition, which in turn influences your uh, life expectancy overall. Finally, 
health inequalities matter not only because they cause illness and they kill, but they cost a significant amount to our society. In fact, recent estimates suggest that the cost to government and the economy of preventable ill health in the working population is in the order of 150 to 204 billion. So health inequalities matter. They matter because of the life course and how it infects, affects all of us, but it costs us as a society. Now, these inequalities are not immutable. They are preventable. There are things that we can do to limit their impact. And there are lots of things that the health system can do to tackle inequalities. And there are three things just to get us started today, which I think are important for all of us to reflect on. First is the importance of health systems to have a clear leadership commitment to both understanding and responding to these inequalities. So health inequalities is an area where leadership really matters. And the NHS in its long-term plan, as we've gone through COVID and as we're focusing on recovery, that drumbeat for every part of the NHS to have a laser-like focus on tackling inequalities is going to be key. Second, all health systems need to be clear about where they prioritize actions so that evidence-based approaches to tackle inequalities can be implemented at scale for impact. And the core 20 plus five, which is the NHS framework for focusing on inequalities, really gives that laser-like focus on which populations to focus on, which health conditions to tackle, and what are the best interventions that need to be put in place to tackle them. And the third thing that health systems can really focus on is really bridging the gap between healthcare systems and local communities. Because many of our inequalities among some of the most disadvantaged populations are based of mistrust, lack of trust, poor access, poor experiences with our health and care services. So the third area where health systems can make a difference is by really looking at outreach, engagement, building better relationships with our communities to improve access and experience and outcomes. So hopefully that gives you a picture of both the nature of health inequalities that we face and specifically some of the things that we're doing in London and health systems more general can do to tackle them. Thank you, Kevin, that's great. And I think we're gonna come on to that local point a bit later on in the podcast. Seema, you were a health minister in the government until 2019. Can you talk us through the government's approach to health inequalities over the last few years? And how does this tie into the levelling up policy? Yeah, thanks, Rosie. I'd say from 2019 to today, so when there was a change of, of prime minister, I'd say the approach has gone in three phases. I, I'm, I would say they were characterised by hostility, interest and now indifference. So at the beginning, when there was a change of Conservative leader to Boris Johnson, there was definite hostility in government to a prevention-based approach. And I say that as the minister who was trying to steer the prevention green paper through to publication. The attitude in the team that was around Johnson was they didn't want nanny statism and interventions. And the incumbent health secretary at the time, Matt Hancock, had pledged his allegiance and therefore it was quite a difficult sell. Then, of course, we had the pandemic where it these health inequalities were thrown into stark relief because there was a much higher rate of serious illness and de death amongst communities like the ones that Kevin has outlined, where these health inequalities are 
very start and there was a sudden interest and of course then we had the reorganization of public health england and the establishment of the office of health improvements and disparities and i'll leave our listeners to decide what the use of the word disparities rather than inequalities means about government's attitude to these gigantic gaps in healthy life years and i think now we're rather in a stage of indifference because the vaccine rollout has happened largely for most of us for many of us we've sort of returned to work um we might have had covid once or twice but life has sort of returned to normal and the focus in government has gone away from the pandemic and i think therefore the the focus again has turned away from health inequalities if we look at the for example the food strategy there was not the attention to obesity that people really wanted. It was a lot more about sufficiency in and support for British farmers. I want to turn also to talk about levelling up. I think at public attention and attention of policymakers has turned away from levelling up much more to cost of living. And the rhetoric and it's seen much more as a rhetoric rather than a policy making matrix but I know that later we want to talk about what might happen in the future but just looking on the white paper that was published in February of this year now there is a specific mission on like extending healthy life expectancy and increasing healthy life expectancy so there is one specific and if we look at the wider determinants of health, so housing, employment, transport, which we know are really what keeps people out of the health and care system, there is focus on that. But the white paper, as we know, it doesn't have come with any new funding. It's very vague. And in terms of health interventions, they're very much targeted at individual activity rather than population wide measures. You know, and I would say if we are looking at places where there is a 20 year gap in healthy life expectancy, those individually targeted measures are just not going to be radical enough to tackle that quickly enough. I mean, there's nothing on gambling. We're still waiting for the gambling white paper to come out. And we know, well, maybe we'll talk about that later. And there's nothing on alcohol interventions. It's very much what can each individual do? And I don't think they that is going to be the sort of measure that's really going to address those big health inequalities that we've heard outlined by Kevin in the introductory question. Thank you, Seema. That's really interesting. Natalie, just to pass over to you now, you were one of the architects of the national ICS policy and you are current chair of the country's largest group of acute trusts. What do you think ICSs need to do to fulfil one of their key missions, which is reducing health inequalities? And what do you think the responsibilities of the providers are here? Yeah, thank you, Rosie. And um, following Seema's uh, slightly depressing description of the, of the state of politics at the moment, I guess we just got ICSs out of the bag in time because they have been launched with a health inequalities agenda. And when I talk to them, it's very high up what they think their mission is so in a way the nhs has a vehicle now to go and do the right thing almost wherever the wherever the dialogue is and i guess the question is can we turn all of that goodwill into real action within the nhs and i, and I think there's 
probably three things that, that I think ICS is, should do. I mean, the first thing is we need to land this working in partnership thing. And, and, and ICSs are, it's a bumpy takeoff, it's bound to be. This is the biggest change in the underlying policy direction of the NHS since Ken Clark was Secretary of State in the early 1990s. So uh, as in this move from competition to collaboration is not just a piece of paper. It actually is a complete philosophical shift and it won't happen overnight. And we have to go through that journey, but within that, the NHS needs to be appropriately humble when you're addressing health inequalities about how much of it is solved by the NHS, different numbers kicking around, but let's say for the purposes of argument, 20% of health inequalities are addressed by what the health service does and 80% are around education, they're around poverty, they're around housing. <coughs> And all of those things. So, so, so if we don't work in proper partnership with the voluntary sector, with local authorities and the like, then we're whistling on the subject of health inequalities and rather than actually, actually addressing them. But if these ICSs are going to make a difference, and, and I'd echo what Kevin said, they're going to need to be starting to get really specific about what they mean. And there is, there is a risk if what we mean about health inequalities is all health inequalities at the same time on day one, nothing will happen. And I think it is important that we, we create some measures and some priorities. Like, do we mean addressing school days lost for uh, because of health in, because of health inequalities because they disproportionately affect poorer communities and loss of educational days at the beginning of schooling has a big difference. For, for the rest of your life? Do we mean parity of esteem in mental health? And I'd say particularly what, what, what is a quiet pandemic appearing around children's mental health post-COVID and, and, and the way in which that is handled by different communities and the ability of more affluent people to see their children okay versus, uh, uh, versus poorer communities? Do we mean medicines errors in the non-English speaking communities because we still hand out all of our medicines with all of the guidance in English, regardless of whether the only language you speak is Farsi, or do we mean addressing screening and vaccination uptake in the communities that have traditionally not accessed these? I mean, there, there is a really long list of things that are health inequalities, and we have to start somewhere. And I think it's important for uh, ICSs to to be clear and public about what their priorities are and how they're going to measure them and what they mean by them. And the third element of that is you then need to shift funding to do that and accept that some other things won't happen. And maybe some other things that we've been doing for a long time won't happen because in this funding environment, if we want to change the balance of priorities, there isn't enough extra money kicking around to be able to do it out of the growth. So, so I think there are some real edgy challenges. But as the chair of the Northwest London Acute Collaborative, the, the four large acute hospitals in Northwest London, I would quite like to touch on whether hospitals have a part to play in this, because it's sometimes easy to talk about health inequalities in a, in a kind of it's always with us. There are also health care inequalities where there are variations in the ability of people to access services provided by the NHS because their medicines, because all medicines are in, in English, because we rearrange outpatient appointments on average three times before someone actually turns up to them. And if you don't speak English, the chances of you DNA in your appointment when it's been moved three times and an English speaking bookings clerk has rung you up is significantly higher. If you have a learning disability, we know from the data you wait longer for hip surgery. You know, there are a whole host of 
outrageous variations in the delivery of care that is nothing to do with your health need and everything to do with how easy it is for the NHS to communicate with you. And we could eliminate that in two years if we just decided to get on with it. And I, and I think whilst we are focusing on the big health inequalities, we also ought to look to our own home and say, are we measuring this? Are we reporting it? Do our boards know? what the variation in, in waiting times are for people with the same conditions, depending on their ethnicity or their social background or their English language or their mental health status. Because if we don't know those things, we can't manage them. And if we do know them, we could just deal with it. And so I think there's a huge challenge out there for us, which at this moment in time, even with all the pressures around, I'm kind of optimistic that the NHS is taking more seriously now than it probably has in my career in the NHS. Thanks, Matthew. Heartbreak, you are a practicing clinician, and I'd like you to kind of touch on what Matthew said there, but also what do you see being the impact of the focus of health inequalities from clinicians? And as a GP, what specifically does primary care need to be doing differently to what it's done previously? Thanks, Rosie. And I think absolutely right with what Matthew's alluded to, but let me just pick up one thing. I, I also had the privilege of having worked on the COVID vaccine program as one of the clinical advisors and doing that role with my GP role, it actually became quite apparent to me that even though GPs are fully embedded in the community and we're meant to be doing a lot more in the community, we don't have as strong networks and relationships as we like to think we do, perhaps. And it was quite an eye-opener for me in that we think about the networks and relationships we have now developed in the community with faith groups, other uh, religious groups, social institutions, uh, community centres that, which, you know, uh, enhances the service that we provide in primary care, I think we're actually in a much better place now than we were prior potentially to the uh, vaccine rollout. And that plays importantly for two reasons, which again, were the lessons I learned from the rollout of the vaccine, which was firstly around convenience. So how do we make things a lot more accessible, whether it's thinking about the hours, how do we make the information more accessible? You know, thinking about the time of people that might be working shift work, other people who might want to come at certain times or weekends and so on and so forth. How do we make the whole service accessible, I think, is a bigger part of the convenience story. So that's kind of the first thing. And the second is kind of the, the other C, which I use as confidence, right, which is, you know, again, a lot of this when it comes down to thinking about inclusivity, thinking about providing care to a, a plethora of individuals is that you need to build that trust with many people. And that takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of resource, but it's fundamentally important if you're gonna be building those relationships with patients to ensure that they engage with health checks, they engage with their treatments, they engage with anything that um, we're saying to them and, and it makes, you know, in order for them to make sense. So I think there's a real opportunity here for us now to be doing a lot more and based Building on the legacy, positive legacy of the COVID vaccine program rollout, I think there's there's uh, opportunities on that. But we do have a lot of up work to do on the heavy lifting side of it, which is things around how do we ensure some of our data sets are a bit more complete. For example, today, we are not routinely recording ethnicity data. So Kevin mentioned the core 20 plus 5 initiative. But if, if I was to go on my data using my EHR and I was to look at patients from certain ethnicities or deprivation and, and, and invite them to come and do health checks, I wouldn't be able to do that very routinely. Now, the problem with that is that are we missing a big chunk of people because we're, we're just routinely inviting the same types of people back and forth rather than those that are not engaging with health in the first place? Of course, we can cut the data in different ways. But the point I'm making here is that we need complete data sets that allow us to give them a full picture. And we need to do that 
in collaboration with colleagues from social care, colleagues from local authorities, and that's where the ICSs, I think, will hopefully play a big role in that in terms of coordinating some of that as well as the PCNs. So that's kind of the first big piece. The second is, you know, we've seen a greater uptake in the use of technology. Now, of course, there was a big shift from one end to the other, but now we've come to some sort of calibration and it's about 50-50 at the moment in terms of patients being seen remotely, whether it's through telephone <laughs> or, or email or, or whether it's face-to-face. -face. I think it's probably the right balance and we we'll probably land on this. But even with that digital offering that we might have, it's a high risk and a possible danger that that becomes a big excluding factor when it comes to certain populations and backgrounds of people and again the digital exclusion piece needs to play a really important role and and i think we we need to be doing a lot more on that to making sure that that is not widening inequalities so so that again for me is a big piece and then the third part is on on the core 20 plus 5 that that kevin mentioned you know we have a big program work around blood pressure right so we want to go out and do blood pressure we want to go and do early cancer diagnosis and screening and and we are but it requires a step up from everyone and not just primary care and so that's what's been worked through at the moment which is to say how do we do that and how do we build the resources and we, we are really happy at the moment because we've been given tons of resource on the back of the ARS which is the additional roles reimbursement scheme and, and through that we're having physios, pharmacists, paramedics, health and well-being coaches, social prescribers so everyone is playing their part now in, in helping us manage those which I think is exciting and then the final part I wanted to mention which I think is exciting lot of colleagues across clinical and, and primary care in particular is that there's a big piece here around education right we can't assume that people understand health inequalities that people will just wake up one morning and say right now it's time to tackle health inequalities i think we have to have a very proactive effort in guiding educating and training if i look at my gp training for example there wasn't a huge amount of focus in inequalities right and i think a lot of it depends on what area are you training? So I'm in Peckham at the moment. This is where I'm, I'm doing this podcast from. And it's a very interesting population because you've got a gentrified group now, which is very wealthy. So the townhouses are like a million plus, but you've still got a very deprived population. And, you know, unless you were training in an area like this, you wouldn't get exposed to health inequalities necessarily if you were in some posh rural area somewhere else. So my point being that the training education of this becomes really important if we were really considering how do we tackle this together? And, and we develop the insights and the skills to go and do that and, and make sure that, that people understand the importance of trust, building confidence and providing services that can encompass a broader range of people. So let me pause there. Thank you, Harpreet. Really comprehensive. Um, Kevin, perhaps I could come to you first to respond to Harpreet and then Matthew and Seema. Yeah, so, so I just wanted to, both Matthew and Harpreet have really reflected on the importance of the community-centered approaches to tackling inequalities, which must form part of what we do moving forward. Um, and I want to give a concrete example of the ways in which that's being done in London, just one of the programs that we've set up. Because what we're keen to do in the city is to ensure that we're not only learning lessons from the pandemic, but we're creating legacies. In other words, differences in the way we're structured, differences in the way we behave, and differences in the way we engage with our communities so we can achieve different outcomes. Because what we don't want to get to is that the pressures of elective recovery and urgent and emergency care become dominant and then revert us to back to where we were before the pandemic. So given the amazing work that partners did 
on the COVID vaccine, we have worked to create a vaccine equity and legacy program, because what we want to do is to build upon the ways in which we engage communities, the rich data that we had, the innovation that we had, the ways in which we were working across partnerships to both learn those lessons for COVID vaccine and other vaccination programs. So currently we're rolling out the monkeypox vaccine. So we're applying many of those core approaches and principles to that. But second, we want to be able to use those ways of working to other public health programs. How do we do better for childhood vaccinations? How do we bring the learning from COVID vaccine to screening and adult vaccination programs, immunization programs? Because what we've learned is about when you bring communities to the table, when you have great data, and when you have that resolute focus of designing your programs through an equity lens first, right? So you design your programs thinking about how do we design this to tackle inequalities upfront and not as an afterthought, then you get very different programs, very different ways of engaging uh, communities and very different ways of leading. So that's one example of what we're doing in the city to create a new legacy, which will help us to think equity first as we develop and deliver our programs. So just wanted to, to share that as an example. Thanks, Kevin. And um, Matthew, if I come to you next to respond. Yeah, Kevin's point about legacy, I think is, is a really interesting one. One of the legacies I think we need to create around the creation of ICSs is a legacy of what we count and what we report. The NHS is really well trained now to respond to what's counted as we've moved towards focusing on very long waits for surgery. We've pretty much eliminated very long waits, but other things that we used to count have got worse because we stopped focusing on them. And we need some measures which are nationally counted that the Secretary of State can be asked about it, health questions in the Houses of Parliament, that the newspapers will run on Superstats Thursday when it comes out as part of the pack, because that, that is how you get the NHS to change its focus. So small example in, in North West London, where Leslie Watts, the Chief Executive of Chelsea and Westminster Hospital, has been very focused on treating what she calls treating patients in turn, which is we divide them up by their clinical need first. And then after that, are we sure we're treating them in the order that they came onto the waiting list? We're looking for, can we come up with a metric which measures how well we do that? And are we getting better month on month? Are we getting closer to one, which would be perfect, which would mean you're treated exactly in the order of your clinical priority. And then once your clinical priority is the same order in which you came off the waiting list, which would mean that we had eliminated the problem of rebooking someone's appointment if they don't speak English. And I think it's an area where, where, where Kevin's leadership is probably going to be really important is what are the ways in which we measure which the public can understand that this metric getting better is good for the nation and the NHS can understand what it needs to do in order to make the metric better. I'd be really interested in Kevin's take on that. I, I think, Matthew, you're absolutely right, because what gets measured gets done, and what gets done has a chance to have an impact. And I don't think that we have stood back and said, in this post-pandemic world, as we're changing both the leadership focus on equity, and as we're developing specific programs, for example, the Core 20 plus 5 
what now do we focus on so that the whole system gets mobilized around it and then we can demonstrate progress now my only caveat to this is that we only we not only focus on some of the clinical indicators of progress but we begin to look at other measures in terms of leadership behaviors the nature and scale of the the, the shape and form of the staffing that we have that are pulling together to deal with these inequalities you know in london we're very keen to ensure that our staff represent the communities from which we're drawn from so in addition to clinical progress how is our leadership changing how is our experience of our staff what level of trust do we have in our local communities with our services because together you need all of those indicators to move in the right direction to truly tackle inequalities so I completely agree with you about thinking about these metrics in a more holistic way and not only focusing on clinical outcomes thanks kevin and um, steam if i come to you next please yeah i was just wanting to go back to a point that harpreet raised and quite rightly he focused on training and uh, bringing an awareness of inequalities in the training of anybody working in the healthcare system. But, and of course, by the nature of the work we've all done, we're focusing on urban areas. And Harpreet, you said, oh, if you'd worked in a rural area, you wouldn't know. I think there is a real problem in policymaking in this country of it being, and it's not just London centric, it's very urban centric. So, of course, if you've got great medical schools in London, in Cambridge, in Edinburgh, in Ma Manchester, you are going to focus on that. It's very difficult to get somebody to go and work in a doctor's surgery in rural Cumbria, in Suffolk, in Norfolk, in Lincolnshire. And those areas, rural and coastal areas, it is really difficult to get access. And it's very difficult to get access to specialist care. And I know from when I was a member of parliament in the Northwest, we were having to bring people in from almost the Scottish borders to Preston because there was literally nobody there and people didn't want to live there. And, you know, if you're a really uh, thrusting young medic, you don't want to live there. And it's very difficult. So those communities also have problem accessing healthcare. And I think that's something that we need to be very alive to. And Chris Whitty did recently, I think it was last year, did write a report on coastal communities. And of course, there've been sporadic efforts over the years to tackle not only health inequalities, but employment and education inequalities in all these areas, because so many people there are so still reliant on seasonal work. So I think that's something as well that we do need to have. If we're having a national discussion about this we do need to think about these communities as well and just on that Seema, i think totally agree and, and that's why you may have heard we are developing new medical schools across country in, in in certain parts of these areas including cumbria so the first one in cumbria is about to start in 2025 with imperial because the research has shown that if you end up training in a particular medical school you're more likely to stay in that area and work in the area and so I think collectively, this is hopefully going to be quite game changing in terms of not only staffing those areas, but also training an environment where you might well be exposed to certain um, elements of this. Mm -hmm. Again, if I another point I wanted to make here, and I raised this earlier, which was that part of this becomes everyone's responsibility, right, in terms of how we recognize, but also how we make every contact count, right? And I think that and there's also been a program work on this. So if I look at, for example, uh, again, in my practice and group practices, when it comes to things like safeguarding and vulnerable adults, we all have responsibility to identify those individuals, whether they come into the reception 
or you know they may have seen them in other encounters in order to capture them and, and, and raise them in our clinical meetings. And to some extent, I think the same applies for those who may encounter health services in, in different settings. Now, if the vaccine program is one of them, and I know there's a big piece of work that was happening in uh, making every contact count where people coming forward for the COVID vaccines were, can we try and do blood pressures on them or can we try and capture certain uh, clinical data? Another program of work, for example, that we're kicking off locally is that the City of London Corporation has set up an initiative which is on providing skills for those who are unemployed. So skills and help on CV, help on interviews and, and, and so on and so forth. So those who are unemployed between the ages of 18 plus. And we are looking to partner with those because we think that as a group that we can invite our patients that might be unemployed because I'm seeing a lot of patients coming forward who have challenges with mental health or, or they're feeling isolated or they don't have jobs in terms of looking for opportunities and our social prescribing teams and health and wellbeing teams have done have been doing a great job on that. But we are looking at developing this initiative, which is those who come in um, and want to get help on their skills, CVs, interviews, and, and look and ability to find jobs, we use the opportunity to engage them with the health service. Because usually young adults, young male adults, young male South Asian and black adults who would not normally interact with the health service is a good way for us to engage with them and a good way for us to do interesting things with them. So the point being that how do we look for innovative ways to engage populations? How do we look for innovative ways to do things like routine screens, routine health checks that you wouldn't do otherwise. And I think that's an exciting space for us locally in a community that we are looking at different channels rather than purely looking at this from the relationship of a GP and a patient, but actually looking at different community initiatives that we can tap into. Thank you, Harpreet. Matthew, your thoughts on that would be interesting. Yeah, I think Harpreet is making a really important point. I, um, the first uh, board meeting I chaired at London Northwest Hospital which is Northwick Park Hospital in Harrow, the big item on the agenda was their role as an anchor institution. And by anchor institution, we mean a, a driver of education and opportunity and community development. Uh, and as the largest employer in the borough, and many of our hospitals, they and the local authority are the largest employers, one of the interesting questions that was asked there was, why do you have to have better IT skills and better English to apply for a job in this organisation than you need to actually do the job in the organisation? And how are we going to go out to the community and explain to people that hospitals aren't only made up of doctors and nurses, there are hundreds of professions that run across a whole range of skills. And also we have the ability to train you to your potential, not to your, uh, and not leave you stuck at your school leaving level of academic attainment. And we can help you develop uh, your English if your English is natural. But the role of the NHS as a provider of educational opportunities and development and aspiration and employment, we could probably almost do as much for health inequalities by really fulfilling that role as we can through the way in which we deliver medicine. Yeah, absolutely, Matthew, thank you. I think I've got time for one last question and I'm keen to get your answer on this Seema but just thinking about this against the kind of context and backdrop to what we're facing in the UK at the moment we're witnessing a leadership change currently at the centre of politics I'm sure for those everyone who knows but for those who haven't been following uh, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss going head to head to be Prime Minister of the UK the language around levelling up seems to have fallen away and most of the references to healthcare are to elective waiting lists and A&E wait times do you think there's a risk that the focus of health inequalities could be lost as a result of this? 
Well, I think in terms of levelling up, both candidates have signed up to the Northern Research Group pledge card. So that's a commitment to levelling up, you know, whatever that means. I'd say it's quite interesting because the portrayal has been very much that Rishi is a sleek southerner and he doesn't have the feel and the understand what's going on in the North and that Liz Truss is from Leeds and she understands it, where actually she has been representing an East Anglian seat for 12 years and Rishi is the one that's represented a Northern seat. He's been very plugged into this sort of Darlington campus agenda. So I do think on the terms of levelling up, he is probably, you know, they're maybe equally committed to the that idea. Rishi Sunak's pledges on the NHS are and primary care in particular are more developed. I think that probably reflects his family background that he's talked about, but it's not, I think it's, you know, his siblings and as well as his parents. Liz Trusses are pretty vague on primary care. I think she says, I want to make GP services more accessible. Well, don't we all? And again, of course, there's very much this attention, as you said, on acute services. And I think that always happens because it is definitely the more it is the more attention grabbing headline grabbing part of our health ecosystem and public health practitioners would say that they are the, the poor relation they don't necessarily get the requisite funding and that the problems you know what will keep people out of those systems are massive systemic changes that we need around health education transport and then may not be part of it I'd say if we're looking on what will they will do in practice, um, Liz Truss has always been extremely open about the fact that she is very much a free marketeer. She believes in a small state. She doesn't believe in um, these sort of interventions. She's been very clear about that, um, that she did not want on food policy. She doesn't believe in telling people what to eat on things like SIDL, on HFSS. I mean, at least we know, we can understand, I think, and predict I wouldn't know what a Sunak government would do on that. But just this week, he's been saying he wouldn't tell people to limit their intake of meat. I know that there was definite Treasury hesitance to some of the suggestions in the gambling white paper that was mooted and we still haven't seen. And I'd be amazed if, let's say, minimum pricing for alcohol was anything that either of them would do. These sort of policies are not going to get through this first (laughs) election that they need to go through, which is with the party membership, they'll be much more likely to let the market dictate on this, on individual choices. So I would say that they will be much more focused on what is happening in A&E waiting rooms and what's happening on access to things, rather than a broader systemic change on these ecosystem challenges. Thanks, Seema. That's extremely helpful. And Kevin, perhaps I could just turn to you to comment on that as well. We need to be grounded in reality as we go through political change once again. And I started the conversation today by making the case that equalities are not just the right thing to do, but economically, it's a necessary thing to do as we think about economic productivity of our country and the sustainability of our health and care services. And with whoever the new leader is, to work in partnership to ensure that they understand the opportunities for early intervention to help to reduce the pressures on the NHS, to create more sustainable communities and resilient communities in order for us to to move forward. Now, being armed, and all of us will need to do this, whether you're in the NHS, in public health, in local government, about what are the best buys for prevention, what are the best buys for tackling inequalities, 
and what we need in terms of both political leadership and system leadership to help us to move forward. So I think that as the decision for a new prime minister is playing forward, it really behooves all of us now in the health and care system to say, what do we need as we move into what is likely to be a very, very difficult winter? very difficult winter, new waves of COVID-19, a monkeypox outbreak, which will continue, the flu pressures. So what do we need to do to help to build more sustainable and resilient systems? Because you know, ultimately, there will be, I hope, a political desire and support for helping all of us to get through what I think is going to be a very challenging period, again, with the cost of living crisis. Our work continues, whether you're in public health, in clinical care, leading an ICS, or in a voluntary sector organization, making the case to our political colleagues, making the case to local communities, that investment in and a focus on tackling inequalities is part of what we need to do as a nation moving forward. Thanks. Thank you, Kevin, for that. Um, I'm afraid I think that's all we have time for today. Thank you to our wonderful speakers for discussing health inequalities with me. This is the second in our mini series on integrated care systems and our next and final episode will be on what ICSs are doing to harness digital technologies and how they are doing it. As always, if you, your business or your investment is exposed to the challenges we've just discussed, don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find contact details for myself and our sectoral teams on the GC website at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. My thanks once again to Professor Kevin Fenton Steve Kennedy, Matthew Swindells, and Dr. Harpreet Sood. And thanks to you for listening. <laughs>